Welcome to the Black Sheep Experience. This is episode number five. And uh, this week we have uh, John Scott actually with us from the Holy Heretics. But before we jump into that interview, uh, just a real quick thing. Uh, jump online and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Uh, as I've said before, I'm going to say it again. Man, brand new podcast, only five episodes in, and so we could really, really use your help. Um, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Come and follow us, share the episode on your uh, social media platforms, and uh, help get the word out, man. It's really, that simple little thing is a huge deal. Uh, anyway, let's jump into the interview with John Scott from the Holy Heretics. There's a This is a two-parter, so this is part one. God bless, man. Thanks for listening today. Okay, so I have with me today uh, the first interview here on the Black Sheep Experience, and today I've got uh, podcasting legend, uh, hero, innovator, uh, man, what else can I say? The amazing, uh, from the Holy Heretics, John Scott. Hey, John, how's it going, man? Oh, my God, dude. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary, innovator, all this stuff. I'm like, I- I'm not, I, well, hopefully I can live up to that. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, no, that's the, you're all those things, man, and more, and more. Uh... <laughs> Uh, no, hey man, I um, uh, I'm so glad to have you on today. Um, you know, I uh, when we did the interview together um, on uh, for the Holy Heretics, I told you I had been listening to uh, your podcast since day one, and um, man, what a ride you guys uh, have had, and uh, just keep on going. Uh, what? I guess maybe the, the way to start this, man, is um, what made you decide to, uh, to to do the Holy Heretics podcast? Well, you know, gosh, man, uh, most of the people, anybody who has listened to my podcast knows that um, it really was one of those, it was one of those kind of things that was a long time coming. We had a lot of conversations uh, centered around religion and spirituality uh, what we would come to know kind of became a buzzword in our in the world of podcasting and religion. Um, the word is deconstruction. Um, mm-hmm. We, I, you know, I, we wouldn't have necessarily used that word as we were going on our journey and experiencing what we were experiencing, but it certainly does speak to what was happening in my personal life. And, and you know, I mean, I have um, I. I was in radio years ago. Um, I used to love radio when I was radio when I was a kid. I used to listen to a lot of different preachers and teachers, and I, I loved relaying um, a message in words. And that's one of the reasons I got into pastoring um, is because I, I wanted to relay a particular message in words. And it just—it was one of those things where Scott Watkins and I are, have been friends for a long time. As, as a matter of fact, we've been—we've been friends as long as. I can even remember being in existence, you know. So 
um, we would have these long conversations. When I say long conversations, sometimes sometimes we'd be conversing over the subject of hell or the Bible or a virgin birth or some kind of a doctrinal thing, the rapture, prosperity preaching. Uh, the subjects were just all over the place. And we'd end up talking sometimes for two hours, man. I'd look down at my phone after getting off the phone and be like, oh, my God, we've been on the phone for two hours. So, you know, one day I just said, hey, man, why don't we do a podcast? I mean, it's, you know, uh, it's relatively inexpensive, <laughs> I thought. Um, and I said, hey, let's just record the conversation. Um, and sort of the rest is history. I mean, we just decided to start talking, having the conversation, um, and put it out there on the World Wide Web. And... Dude, we had no idea that it would touch the nerve it touched. Um, certainly, as it pertains to numbers, uh, there are more podcasts out there that are more popular than Holy Heretics podcast. But it definitely touched the nerve, and now now we've been downloaded in over 80 countries and um, several hundred thousand downloads now and headed toward the million mark as we speak. And, I, you know, it's just touched the nerve and continues to do that. And... I have, in this season two that we've started in, fallen more in love with it than uh, than I than I even was in the beginning. Honestly, the conversation is is morphing and evolving, and to me, there's just a lot left to be said. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm at with it. And 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 I, it's, it's a podcasting is new to a lot of people, and I didn't realize that. You know, there's there's, there's thousands of podcasts out there, but but um, apparently there's still a lot of people left on the planet who don't know about podcasts. And I think it's going to become the, the, the new talk radio of a new generation. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely, man. And I, I, I agree with you. I think um, I, I'm only four uh, episodes in. This, uh, the interview will be uh, the, the fifth. But, um, you know, something that you said, which was amazing to watch you guys uh, because – you started out, and, and um, you know, it was just you and Scott. And then, uh, boy, I mean, within no time at all, it seemed like everybody was listening to the uh, to the Holy Heretics. And right there, there are people out there, um, and, and you said this before. There are more people out there searching than than maybe what you think. And what's so great about podcasting is you can kind of dial in to whatever it is that you're looking for and whatever it is that your you know your interests are. And uh, I just think the podcasting world is such a cool place, man, um, to discover, uh, I guess, ideas and thoughts and, you know, the conversation, I guess, that's, uh, that, that you're wanting to be involved in. Now, let me, um, let me jump into something here because I, I think it's, it's interesting that you brought it up, all these conversations that you and Scott were having, um, because there's a lot of people listening who um, the deconstructing process, and I know that that's kind of like a buzzword um, right now, but that process is a scary process. Uh, how did you start? And, you know, one of the things I found difficult about it is trying to, trying to find some footing in this whole thing. Um, what kind of pushed you on that path? You know, I, I tell people that, uh, I am about two or three generations 
Pentecostal preachers, right? So uh, I was raised in church. Uh, I'm still in recovery. Um, so, you know, right. I say that as a, as a as a way to be funny, but but the truth is that I am still recovering and uncovering. Um, yeah. A lot of what it is to become your essential self versus your accidental self. Yeah. Um, I was taught to be my accidental self. And, in fact, most most of the time when I would make good decisions, as a um, as a uh, an adult, I would stumble across the good decision almost on accident, um, because there was so much guilt and shame. I mean, I, I was just inundated with uh, fear and um, guilt and shame and uh, reproach and. Uh, I mean, my whole life was built around a religion. Um, that was in many ways a call to personalities. Um, and, and it was, uh, we, there was so much fear in it that, um, but I was, con- I'll say this, there was a lot of fear in it, but I was conditioned to it. So I didn't go around necessarily with a conscious sense of, of being afraid because I was saved. I got saved at four years old. You know, my dad used to talk about it from the stage. Um, he would talk about how my brother and I, at five, four and five years old, came up to him. It was the proudest moment of his ministry is what he used to say. And we would say to him, Dad, we want to know how to be saved. So at four years old, I got saved, so I was okay. You know, I was going to be fine. I was going to right. go to heaven. Um, but But there was still a subconscious sense of fear especially when you start to develop the ability to to think for yourself, because it did make sense to me. There was so much about this angry God who was uh, someone that I could serve and I could worship, but I could never love and certainly could never like, because it was, it was a God that, that who was um, easily angered and would um, at the drop of a hat cast me into hell. If I, if I, you know, God forbid, I was driving down the road and and had cussed five minutes before and got into a car accident. I mean, I I could bust hell wide open just for that. So there was this subconscious fear. Well, as it led into my adult life, um, uh, you know, because at the age of fourteen I started preaching, and I was a card carrying preacher dude guy that got invited to come and do all of the to go and do all of the youth revivals, youth rallies, the lock-ins, all of the stuff. And anybody who's religious out there, you probably just went down memory lane there. Um, but I would, you know, I'd go and preach, and I found out quickly that, you know, if you preach the way the preachers, the adult preachers preach, you're going to get booked like crazy to do these youth events, and they pay you, which is an added bonus. Um, and I started preaching. Well, from 14 until about 19, I was what you would call an itinerant evangelist traveling and preaching all over the place. When I started pastoring my first church, which I said I would never do, when I started pastoring my first church at the end of 1998, all of a sudden I had to come up with something something to tell these people every single freaking week. Yep. See, you, all you need is about four or five good sermons if you're an itinerant minister. Just four or five good ones. If you end up with a five-night revival, you just you just make sure that you get everybody hyped enough with those songs you know how to sing, 
that the Holy Ghost just takes over and you don't have to preach. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, any of you who have been preachers, you understand what I'm saying when I say that. So, But I had four good sermons. Well, you know, it only takes you a month to be done, and your material is done at this new church. So I, I tell people I made the mistake of studying. And then also real life combined with real life started to happen. Um, so the combination of studying and real life led me down some paths that were extremely scary. I mean, scared the hell out of me, dude. And and really um, challenged me so deeply that along about, uh, I guess it would be about 2002, I started into what I would call a crisis of faith. And it was the crisis of faith that led me to the Christ of my faith currently. Um, it just took a lot of disassembly and um, destruction, really, um, or deconstruction to do that. At the same time that I'm challenging everything I believe internally, it affects my relationship and my marriage at that time so deeply that I um, I ended up in a divorce. Well, if you're divorced um, in the the line of church or the genre of church I grew up in, you're no longer qualified to even pastor anymore. So when I started going through a divorce, not only am I losing my the foothold on the things I thought I believed deeply, but also my the uh, basically the aesthetic even of the life that I was proposing to the world around me was also being torn down through the way of a divorce. And, bro, I, I sat in the middle of my bed many nights um, asking God to take me out. Yeah. I wouldn't do it myself. I wasn't suicidal to the degree that I would do it myself because then I was afraid I was sure enough I'd go to hell for eternity, you know. But um, I have asked many times for God to take me out during that season because everything around me that I had believed in was going away. Yeah. So that's what led led to the path of heresy. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, man, because um I uh you know, last week on um the the uh, Black Sheep uh podcast, I talked about how uh doctrine your your experience does affect your doctrine. Now growing up Pentecostal, um I was also um a licensed Pentecostal, you know, uh, preacher did the did the same kind of routine really um you're always taught that um your your experiences line up with your doctrine your doctrine doesn't line up with your experiences right mm. but as you go through your life that is almost impossible to to hold that line mm. and as you meet people who you know, whatever they've been through, a horrible divorce or they were horribly abused by their parents, uh, they lost someone to cancer, um, you know, there's just a million different tragedies that happen in life. And it's impossible for those events not to affect your view of God. And so somewhere mm-hmm. along the line for me, it just got to be, and I'm still, I'm still struggling with this, you know, I, I'm still struggling with this, but this idea that somehow if you don't get it all figured out, well, too bad you're going to hell. And, and that's mm-hmm. the thing that just started, and still, man, just kills me. Uh, I just can't, 
I just can't, um, I just can't hang with that. I just don't have buy-in for that. Um, and I know there's other people out there like that who their their emotions, and I'm not talking about silly, stupid emotions, but their genuine, heartfelt compassion and uh, intellect, even. Um, they struggle with that and with their faith. Um, how would you direct or guide somebody that, that brought those questions to you? Well, you know, I would say that um, really everything that we experience in life is going to affect the lens that we look through to try to see God. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There are a lot of people who say that it doesn't. But, like, for instance, we don't read the Bible as it is. We read it as we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't even see the message of Jesus often as it is. We see it as we are. We'll read into Jesus. You know, I, I can't I can't tell you how many people I watch completely uh, misquote or take out of context Scripture. Now, in the sense, now, and when I say when I say that, that sounds like I'm certain on what the context is. But it's interesting to watch people take uh, whole uh, verses of Scripture when they're using it. Um, as a weapon, they'll take it completely out of context in order to make it work for their agenda. So I would say to someone who's struggling with that and your experiences don't line up with what has been called the Word of God, first of all, I would say that I think that at the very foundation, we need to start seeing the Bible for what it is and not for what it isn't. Um, when, when, when we were taught growing up that the Bible is the Word of God, what, what they were saying to us is that the Bible is perfect. The Bible is perfect, it's inerrant, it is infallible, it is the way you, it's a roadmap um, and a an owner's manual for your life. Well, it, that's, it's okay to believe that unless you want to read it. Because then when you read it, you go, <laughs> when you read it, you go, holy, holy shit, that's, 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 wait a minute, what, what, I, I don't, I don't believe it's okay to own slaves and I don't think it's okay to, it, it, you know, if if your if if your daughter's raped by a foreign soldier during a battle, that uh, you know you should uh, <laughs> that she's raped in the battle, that you should sell her to that soldier because she's not valuable enough to sell to your kinsman anymore. I mean, I don't believe that stuff, right? So, I would say to people that I think experience is always more important than explanation. So when we when we get to the place where and and this is where we we get into the dangerous world of uncertainty and actually living by faith, people will say to me today, "So are you saying you don't live by faith anymore?" No, actually, I think I live more by faith than I ever did before, because I don't believe that faith is exercised in the certain. I believe faith is exercised in the uncertain. Um, I believe that the uncertain is what gives you a, a, a six pack. In the in the workout of faith, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So um, I would say to people that that first of all, I would become if you're going to have a real, actual, ongoing, walking, talking uh, relationship and an intimate relationship with what is spiritual, what is divine, what is outside of our realm of explanation, is that you'll become comfortable with being uncomfortable. That you'll yeah. get to a place where you're very comfortable with uncertainty. Um, where you actually find that you sleep better on the uncertain than you ever did in the bed of certainty. Uh, because the bed of certainty is actually very full of, it's full of bed bugs, man. And 
I, uh, so I would say to the individual that if you're, if you align your heart and your spirit and your mind with a, just a sincere desire to know what there is to know about the divine nature, uh, it'll present itself to you. Um, and then your experience will lead you to transformation. See, that's one of the things that I can say for sure about my life, dude, is that explanation um, never transformed me, but experience did. Experience will mark you for life. Um, just ask Jacob in the Bible, who said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And then he, he was left with a limp. It will mark your life, and it will manifest in your life when you have an experience. And there's an old quote, and I can't remember who said it. The old quote is, uh, a man with an argument is always at the mercy of a man with an experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can explain. That's great. I enjoy a good debate over theology, but the root word for theology is theory. And I think we need to keep that in mind. That we're talking about theories. We're, we're not talking about a stationary kind of law. You know, it's not what goes up must come down. When you're talking about theology, it's what goes up may float today and it may come down tomorrow. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because one of the one of the great books, I think, for, for someone that's starting on the path is um, The Sin of Certainty by Pete Enns, mm-hmm. where he kind of talks about... Um, you know that kind of that kind of Christian experience, the where you have all the certainty and you have all the answers. Uh, that that's not a healthy, uh, that's not a healthy relationship with God. You know, on any level, really. Uh, right. And I think that you know there's a lot of value and, and there's a lot of cool things in that book. But whenever you start to look at, uh, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with the term midrash, which is you know. Uh, very popular within the still within the Jewish culture, where all these uh, discussions about scripture are open to theory. They're open to mm-hmm. new ideas. They're open to you know what do you think and this is what I think and they have these incredibly healthy arguments that aren't divisive, but instead they bring unity. Uh, I just think that man, if we could get to that place where you know. Um, one of the things that you talked about, uh, that you've talked to me about before, uh, just for the listener, uh, John and I have been friends, uh, now just for a couple of months, really a few months, but, uh, we've talked a lot about the deconstruction process. But, uh, John, one of the things that you talked about, uh, was interpreting scripture through Jesus. Mm. Which is, I think, really powerful. In fact, uh, if I'd be bold enough to say so, it, it, it seems to me that Jesus and even the apostles are almost reframing the identity of God when they say things like, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's almost like there's a reframing process even within that culture uh, and that may be kind of crazy and off base, but I think that's part of the reason why they had such a hard time originally accepting uh, some of the things that Jesus was saying. Because, you know, honestly, sometimes whenever Jesus said something like, you say eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I say, I mean, right there, he's reframing uh, the idea of what it is that God really wants from us. Absolutely. Certainly is. No, that's, and I, I, I believe, 
so, all right, in cemetery, I mean seminary, um, <laughs> they uh, they often resemble each other. But but the yes. the in seminary, you you are taught hermeneutics, um, how to exegete scripture, how what the hermeneutics are, and hermeneutic is basically means the science of interpretation, right? So when for for me when I started on this journey. My hermeneutic was all over the damn place. I mean, it was all over the place because I, I didn't even know what hermeneutic was. If you just kind of come up to me and you'd said, what's your hermeneutic? I would have been trying to figure out which article of clothing you were asking me. Sure. Wear. <laughs> right. I'm like, I, would, I, I, what, I didn't know what my underwear was showing. I, mean, that was showing. <laughs> so I, I just wouldn't know. So, but, but to find out that hermeneutic is, is our science of interpretation. So in other words, it's the way we interpret Scripture Holy writing, it could be your hermeneutic about the Quran, or it could be your hermeneutic about the Old Testament, the New Testament, it could be whatever the spiritual or, or, or what is considered to be spiritual writings or religious writings. Mm-hmm. So when my hermeneutic, when, when, when I realized what that was, I decided and determined that my, I would use the Jesus hermeneutic. So that means I would read the entire Bible through the lens of Jesus hermeneutic. So my science of interpretation became that. And what's interesting is you'll watch you'll watch Jesus, um, you watch him particular in particular he'll, he he quotes a, a particular passage of Deuteronomy, right? And he quotes the entire passage except for the final few lines, and it's because the final few lines the writer in Deuteronomy goes off about the wrath of God, and Jesus leaves it out. As a matter of fact, Jesus does that five or six times in the Synoptic Gospels, where he will quote. From the books of the law and the prophets, which is what he would have used because Jesus wasn't a Christian, he was a Jew. Yeah, he believed in his Jewish religion. And he quoted from those prophets and from those books, and then, but he left out the judgment part. Everything Jesus quoted in the Gospels from the Old Testament, which is what we call it, we call it the Old Testament. From the writings of his particular belief system, everything he quoted uh, and read was always about love and inclusion and about a relationship with a God as a father and not just a, a, a biological sperm donor, but a, a father, a parent, a loving parent. So Jesus is showing us that the, this tyrannical, angry, ogre, supervising, manager, um, dictator of a god that had been taught was being taught during his time um, was not the god that Jesus believed in. All right, man. So that is where we are going to cut off today. That is uh, the end of uh, part one of my interview with uh, John. We'll have part two up next week. And man, I got to tell you, this guy. This, he's a good guy, really, and uh, in developing a relationship with him over the last uh, few months, um, I just appreciate how genuine he is and uh, the things he has to say. I think they really come from a pure heart, man, and we could uh, definitely use more of that. So, listen guys, thanks a lot for joining in. Again, really would love to hear from you. Please jump online. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know what you thought uh, about some of the things that John had to say again. And um, 
share it with your friends, man. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Instagram. Uh, quotes from the podcast. Whatever, man. Let everybody out there know you're listening. And we will check in with you next week. Thanks a lot, guys. God bless you.